Now, if you have your Bibles, obviously we're going to turn to Proverbs chapter uh, 26. And last week, uh, we looked at, I think, one of the greatest unknown verses in all of the Bible that really deals with the, uh, the movement, uh, the way the Bible talked about it, and the operation, the street that it talked about of the devil. Bible said in verse 13, talked about a lion in the way and a lion in the street. We just took that one verse because I wanted to expound on that, and we really did, and I brought you through, and I showed you how that, there's no question about who this lion is. First uh, Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And so we talked about that, and we talked about how he will walk the streets through life, history, religion, philosophy, science, theology, churches, Bible colleges, seminaries, and the lives of men and women, whether they're saved or lost. And, you know, and through understanding his way, uh, the way of a serpent, Genesis chapter 3, we saw how he camouflages himself, he hides, and how he just uh, gives himself uh, all of the, uses all of the things uh, around him. And we talked about how that down through history, he had changed his garments. And I, I showed you how that worked. One of the most amazing things in understanding history. But then I also told you that even though down through time in history, he does change his garments, his face is always the same. When it comes to the devil, Christ, the Bible, or anything, the key number one thing to do is to know what to look for. When you know what to look for, you're going to find what you need to find, and that's just the way it is. And again, I told you last week that there's more information on the devil than any other person in the Bible outside the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason for that is, and this is also the problem, most people don't even know this. You know that the devil and the Lord Jesus are both Christ's in the Bible? The word Christ means Christos. It means anointed one. And Christ is God's anointed, and the devil was the anointed cherub before he fell. So this even complicates it more, and you find this, these references in like in Romans 11 and Re- Revelation 12 and Luke 2 and Acts 4, where it actually makes a reference to Christ, but it's saying the Lord's Christ or His Christ, showing you clearly that there's two. And so it's hard sometimes to uh, be able to distinguish, and we'll talk about that today as we get a little bit farther in this. Now, I showed you Uh, Job chapter 40 through chapter 41, Revelation chapter 12 and Revelation chapter 13 were the four key chapters, two in the Old Testament, two in the New Testament. You get those together and you're going to understand uh, how he operates. And the Bible talks about that God would not uh, hide his parts, his power, nor his comely proportion. And uh, I I gave you that and, you know, a little closer look at it if you'd ever want to do it is his parts would be the men that he used in the Old Testament. The nations would, uh, the power would be the nations that he used in the times of the Gentiles after Israel's gone off the scene. And the company proportion would be the church age as he acts as religion. Tremendous, tremendous, tremendous study as you come through the Bible. And certainly one of the most incredible and important studies throughout the whole Word of God. Uh, you know, I, then I showed you that we talked about the law first mentioned, how you find something in the Bible the first time. And I showed you the seven distinct titles or names for the devil, and each time you find it, it opens up another aspect of, of, his, of the way his way and his street. So we covered all that last week, and I just kind of give you that as an intro because all of these verses kind of go together. Now, when we're coming through Proverbs, I've tried to do what 
any good pastor should do when it comes to teaching the Bible. And that's balance it all out. You have some guys that every time they get in the pulpit, all they're going to teach is you need to get saved, you need to get saved, you need to get saved. And they'll give an invitation at the end of the service and, you know, they'll sing 48 stanzas just as I am. And a lot of times saved people will just come down so they can get out of church. And, and, you know, I get that. And then you guys got some guys that just teach fluff all the time, you know, all about the Christian life, all about this. There's no doctrine to it. And, you know, I learned years and years ago that the Bible is a balanced book. And for you to be a balanced preacher and have a balanced church, you have to balance it out. So we've done that in Proverbs. We've talked about some great doctrinal things, and I've laid out some great doctrinal truths for you, how they apply in a future sense, in a historical sense. Uh, And we've laid out a lot of history. I've explained the historical application. Last week, we got into some really deep Bible, didn't we? And we talked about some things that you probably wouldn't find in your average Baptist church or any church, but they're there, and you need to know these things. But today, it's going to be purely inspirational. We're going to balance and come back the other way. This is going to be, wherever you're at in your Christian life, this is going to be probably one of the best messages, not because I'm preaching it, because of the truth that I'm going to try to give to you uh, on your own personal life with the Lord Jesus Christ. It'll certainly answer a lot of questions. And this, if you're here today and you're trying to struggle to get out of the world or you want to get deeper into the Bible or you're going through some things in your life, Uh, this will help you today. And I I want you to know, nothing I ever preach to you guys will be in a, uh, you know, a condescending, what's that word? Condescending, Condescending, yeah. In a bad way. It'll always be uh, something that I want to help you with. So if something hits you between the eyeballs today, it, it isn't like I've been following you around all week. It's really been more like a month, and I know every place you've been. No, it's a thing where I'm, I'm just trying to help you. But you know, in life, there's hard things in life, isn't there? And you know, sometimes those hard things hit us hard, don't they? Well, I want to tell you, hard things that hit you hard, sometimes it's hard to get out of those hard things that hit you hard. And sometimes it takes good hard preaching to get you out of those hard things. So that's where I'm coming from. I want you to know that. And uh, today we're going to look at uh, our guy here uh, who is a sluggard and he's slothful. And remember now, I told you last week when we started this little section that there's four direct references to him in this section. And we saw one last week and we're going to see the other three uh, today. And today I want to read for you, believe it or not, we're going to get through three verses. I know this is hard for you to believe. But uh, it's, uh, they all kind of go together, so we want to do that. But we're going to read verses 14, 15, and, and, and 16. Let's, uh, let's read it. Uh, As the door turneth upon his hinges, so doth the slothful upon his bed. The slothful hideth his hand in his bosom. It grieveth him to bring it again to his mouth. The sluggard is wiser in his own conceits than seven men that can render a Reason. Chris Chabosky, would you stand up and ask God's blessing on the service this morning for me? Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you. All right, now the verse says, As a door turneth upon his hinges, so doth the slothful upon his bed. Now that's an illustration that everybody can use. 
uh, I don't know anybody here that's got a revolving door in your house, but uh, uh, I know some churches that need them. But, uh, but it's a thing where, but we all understand that illustration. A door opens and closes. And, uh, you know, you probably don't even think about it, but how many times do you go in and out of your house that you, uh, or any room in your house, that you're, that door is constantly being opened and being closed? And here's what he's saying. And it's a great truth for all of us. And I want to take these illustrations and then I want to develop into a spiritual, practical thing that we all can get something from it. What he's saying is that there is no rest for a door. It continually being opened and shut all the time. And just like the door has no rest, a slothful and a man who is a sluggard will never find any rest or peace all of his life. Uh, It'll keep him tossing and turning uh, as he tries to sleep at night. You know, uh, the Bible makes it clear that, uh, you know, uh, how important it is to get a good night's sleep. Most God's people don't, don't, don't know this because they don't get into the Bible that way. And even of us who know it, <laughs> don't always follow it. I certainly don't. But the Bible makes it clear that nighttime uh, and sleep is really a key aspect to God in you and in God's plan for your life. I mean, God could have made us any way that he wanted us. If God was in such a big hurry to win the world, why did he have make us to sleep at all? I mean, why didn't he just not go toward 24-7 and, and keep it moving? Why, why did he make us so fragile? Why did he make us that when we get uh, about 8 or 9, 10, 12 hours going through the day, we get tired and we need to sleep at night? Well, there's a lot of reasons for that. But Job chapter 33, verses 14 through 17 is, is one of the main ones. And I want you to see this. It says in verse 14, For God speaketh once, yea, twice, yet man perceiveth it not. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falleth upon men and slumberings upon the bed, then he openeth the ears of men and uh, uh, sealeth their instructions, that he may withdraw man from, for, from his purpose and hide pride from man. Now, the Bible says in that verse that there's a reason why you sleep at night. And uh, you, you can't help but notice a couple of Thursday nights ago, somebody asked a question about, we were back in 1 Samuel chapter 3, and I talked about God calling Samuel. He was asleep when God did that. There's something about our sleeping at night where uh, God wants to, you know, to do something to seal instructions in us. If we do our part, I- I've always said, you know, I've always said, and I've heard it all my life from the old guys, that, you know, for us, uh, our day begins in the morning whenever you get up, 5.30, 6 o'clock, 7, 8, 9, whatever. But God's day's not that way. The Bible made it clear fear in Genesis that God's day begins at night because he says the evening and the morning were the first day. There's something about God's day starting at night when you go to bed that God's going to do something for you if we do what we're supposed to do. And, uh, you know, I, I, a good night's sleep should be uh, on an empty stomach. We would call it a fast. And because God wants to do something while you sleep, and when you fast and there's nothing on your stomach, you're, you're, you're at complete his disposal of what, of what he wants to put in you. And then in the morning, the most important meal, any nutrition will tell you this, the most important meal you have is the morning meal, which is breakfast, which is nothing more than two words, breaking the fast that you're supposed to have all night long. And it's a thing where, you know, uh, and, and, and here's the problem. 
when we fill our stomach with pizza, hamburgers, and all the things that we do, then when we sleep at night, and we're, hey, I'm, we're all guilty of it. I am. I mean, uh, hey, there's a reason why they love us at Jason's Deli on Saturday night. And I saw some of you put away those meatball sandwiches. There's one gal in our church that ate five meatball sandwiches last night. I couldn't believe it. I'm just kidding. Uh, it, it's a thing where, but I watch those things. You get three big meatballs, you get a big hunk of bread, and then you get chips, and, and then you go get a salad. And I know, you get a salad because you're deluding yourself that you're eating right. <laughs> a salad is, a, is a, nothing but a cop-out. Unless you just get the salad, but the salad, he said, oh, no, I'm eating right, I had a salad. Yeah, but that big 60-pound burger you had that takes five people to eat, uh, I mean, what about that? <laughs> And so we, you know, and I'll tell you something else. You know, we go home at night and we watch a movie and you watch, uh, you know, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre or you turn it around there and there's something really good on and 19 people getting murdered, caught up. And, and don't, hey, don't get me wrong. I love teenagers getting cut up with a chainsaw as much as anybody. <laughs> but then you go to bed on that stuff. The worst thing you can do is watch the news before you go to bed. Man, you'll churn yourself into a fit doing that. And what happens is, when God wants to take that night and seal your instructions, where your body's as, as close, honestly, to dying as it gets, and you're, you're completely uh, dominant, uh, you know, you don't have any control, it's there. Your body has to work all night to digest all that stuff that you put in it. And, uh, you know, and it's just, and so there's no rest, there's no instructions. And for us, and when I'm speaking spiritually here, when our spirit is full of trouble, when our spirit is full of all kinds of issues that we have to deal with in life, and you're having a hard time, you don't sleep well at night. It's a, it's a thing. You're, you don't even have a good day. But you certainly, you know, there's something about, you know, you can put it off all day long. But when you go to sleep and you pull those covers up and the lights are out and nobody's around, then those things start coming out again. And for the Christian life, there's three key words in the Bible that will be vital to that. And I want to talk about that in light of our slothful man today. And, you know, a slothful man or a sluggard, he'll, he'll never have these. And I, and I want you to understand why, especially you people who work with me in the people ministry. Now, I've kind of given them a little heads up yesterday, so they're where we're going here. But it's a thing where uh, it's a great lesson for all of us and a great lesson uh, that, uh, uh, that not only for you if you're helping somebody, but for your own self uh, where you may be at with the Lord. And those three words are simple words, but I want to develop them for a moment in this verse, and then we'll get on to the other two. The first word is the word rest. The second word is the word peace. And the third thing I want to talk to you about is having a good conscience toward God. Now, all those three things have to go together. You'll never have a good conscience toward God if you don't have rest and peace in your life. And if you don't have rest, you won't have peace and you won't have a good conscience. They all got to be there. You know, we know in the Bible that number three is the number of completion. So if you want a a, a completeness in that aspect of your Christian life and your walk with God, uh, you have to have all three of these. I mean, why, why everybody says, well, I didn't, you know, I can't sleep at night. Well, try counting sheep. Why, why worry about counting sheep to fall asleep? And I know it. You count it and then, you know, you, you, you know. hey, why count sheep when you can talk to the shepherd? 
I, I mean, and I have people all the time say, Bob, you know, I know what you say about reading the Bible before I go to bed. I feel so terrible about it. And I say, why is that? And they say, well, I start to read it, but then I, I just fall asleep. That's what you're supposed to do. That is the greatest thing in the world. You know that was great if you start reading the Bible and you fall asleep and you die in the middle of the night? Could you imagine waking up and seeing the Word of God standing in front of you? That's a great thing. Now, I don't want you to die tonight, but I'm just telling you, that's, that, that's what you want. You know, you want God to seal your instructions and do something with you while you're sleeping, as it says. I'm telling you, you can't get that thing working for you. Get into that Bible and drift off into a sleep with the last thing on your conscious mind is the things of the, the Word of God. Now, let's look at these three for a minute. Let's examine rest for a moment. Learning how to rest in the promises of God. And I want to say this starting out. This is something God's people really have a tough time with. And I've never really understood it, but we do. We get our lives so complicated. We get our lives so messed up with bad choices that we make and things and, and things that we allow into our life. And it just, it just rips the rest right from us. And in the Bible, I don't know if you know it or not. Some of you have been around here for a while. We've talked about it before. The greatest verse in the Bible, as far as I'm concerned, on understanding how you get rest is Psalms chapter 37. Psalms chapter 37, verses 1 through 7. If you, want a, if you want a how-to passage that'll show you the five things you need to do to get to that point, boy, this is the place to go. He says in Psalms 37, 1, he says, Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Uh, trust in the Lord and do good, so shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily shalt thou be fed. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thy heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light and judgment as the noonday sun. Verse 7, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way, because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. Now, that's a five-point little outline. The first thing you've got to do is quit being afraid. You know why? Because greater in you is, is he that is in the world. If you have a love for God that's a perfect love, the Bible says perfect love casteth out fear. What are, you, what are you afraid of? My buddy Clint, uh, uh, Greg McClintock was a uh, prosecuting attorney up in Monmouth, Illinois, and he was a judge for a while. He's retired. I was pastor of the church now. I won him to Christ a number of years ago. He told me the story about, uh, and when I would go up there, we would ride with the state police uh, you know, and just have a good time together. And he told me the story about this, 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 this state trooper who pulled over this lady uh, who was, he got her license. She was 92 years old. She's driving this big boat of a 1960-something. And uh, he walks up, and he, and he pulled, and she was kind of weaving, you know. And he, he pulled her over, and he walked up, and he says, Ma'am, can I see your driver's license and registration? And she gave him that. And he looked down, she was 96, I think 96 years old, still driving that big boat. And uh, he got ready to say something to her, and she looked up and says, and you need to know that I have a firearm in the gub box, but I have a concealed carry permit. <laughs> he says, uh, okay. Uh, he, says, he says, okay. And he, she says, and besides that, she says, I have my late husband's shotgun in the trunk, if you look in the trunk. <laughs> he says, okay. He gave her the license, and he says, ma'am, he says, what, what are you afraid of? And she looked up and said, not a thing. <laughs> God's people are afraid of everything today. 
Here's an 86-year-old lady who had a gun in a glove box, or he had a shotgun in the back, and she ain't afraid of nothing. You have the power of God, the Word of God, and the Holy Spirit of God, and we're afraid of everything. Why is that? So the first thing he says is fret not. Then the second thing he says, he says, uh, trust in the Lord, verse 3. You've got to put your trust in the things of God, the principles, the things that God does for you. And then the next thing, trusting isn't enough. You've got to enjoy what you're trusting. So the next thing is delighting yourself into it. Do you enjoy the Word of God? Do you enjoy getting into that book and finding out everything that God has for you? So you've got to fret not, then you've got to trust in the Lord, then you've got to delight yourself, and then you've got to commit your way. You've got to come to the place in your life where the way you're going isn't the way you're going to go anymore. And you've got to realize that you're done with that. And then when you get to that point, you've done these four things. And then the next thing is, he says in verse 7, rest in the Lord. Without a commitment to the way of God, without delighting yourself in that book, without trusting in the Word of God and learning not to be afraid, there'll never be any rest in your life. Rest for the believer is the mark of spiritual maturity, the Christian life. I want to tell you something. The Christian life never gets any easier. I love you guys for coming up here. Charles doing yours last night. But I want to tell you young guys something. The Christian, just because you moved up here, is not going to solve all your problems. And because you want to learn the Bible and you want to get in the Bible, there's plenty of people out here that will testify that the Christian life doesn't get easier, it gets harder. But now when you have these things and you can rest in the Lord, we learn that in the midst of conflict, no matter what it may be, we can rest because we trust in the principles and the promises that God has given us. And that's all we want to do here. That's all that I want to do with any of you. I I can't walk around the rest of your life and and solve all your problems. I, I wish I could, but I got too many of my own. So you got to come to the place in your life where you put a process in your life that you, in the midst of conflict, that's always going to be there. Hey, I wish in the ministry there was a day that I could get up and didn't have to solve somebody's problem. I'll tell you something else. I wish there was a day in my life I didn't have to solve my problems. Forget you. But the only way you're going to do that is to get to the point where you can rest in what he gave you. And when you learn to rest in what he gave you, then the second word, peace. You know, in the Bible, and most people don't know this, in the Bible, the Bible defines two kinds of peace. In Romans chapter 5, 1, it says, it says, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's peace with God. That's salvation. The day you got saved, you made your peace with God. The second kind of peace is 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 after you get saved, and that's Philippians 4, 7. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and mind through Christ Jesus. So you have peace with God when you got saved, and then after you're saved, you have peace of God. Based on the rest, based on the trust, based on the peace that God puts in your life. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3. I'm fully aware Isaiah 26, 3 is a millennial promise to the nation of Israel when they get into the millennium, which is their rest. But it's a great spiritual application. He says, Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. There it is. You get your mind stayed on the book because you trust it. 
And then that leads to a good conscience toward God. Now, that's a, you know, that's a nebulous term in, in most churches and, and Christianity today because most people don't get the Bible definition of things. But a good conscience toward God is, is nothing uh, spectacular. It just simply means that you can always look back in your life and know that whatever you did, you did it by the book. Amen. That's all you have to know. In dealing with people, you know as well as I do, you deal with people. People don't always do what's right with what you give them. And sometimes they don't make it. I've watched some of you, and I know it's a learning process. I get that. And this is not a criticism to anybody because we're all, we're all learning here. But I've watched people work with people, and you pour your heart and soul and mind into them, and they don't make it. And immediately you start blaming yourself. Now, I'm not saying there aren't times that we do stupid things that, that can mess people up. I get that. But in most of the cases that I'm talking about, that wasn't the case. And I try to tell people, hey, in my life, and my ministry, all down through it, I've had people that I poured myself into. I try to do one thing with everybody comes into this church. I try to give you the best shot I can. That's all I try to do. I try to give you everything I can to the best shot. I try to read you, see where you're at, and then try to find out, ask you what you need. And then my job is to cookie cut, paste, stick, stickums, yellow stickums, whatever it is, and get it what you need and give you in that, to the best of my ability, the best shot I can. But even in that, people aren't going to make it. And I want to tell you what, I love people. People is my, my life. I mean, I love people. People are everything to me. I mean, if you wouldn't have people, you wouldn't have people. I love people. And it's a thing where, it, to me, they are, they, they're the whole essence of the ministry. And, you know, they're, they're challenging. They're all different. You know, they come in different shapes, different sizes, different issues. But I have never met somebody, anybody, no matter what their problem was, outside a couple areas that may get into the area of demonic and, and beyond uh, control. I have never met anybody with just your garden variety problems in life that the Bible didn't have the answers to fix what's wrong with you. And, and I know you do it. I do it. But I understand people aren't going to make it. And I feel bad about that because I want people to be successful. I mean, I can even get the idea I get up here and preach because I want you to fail. I want you to be everything God wants you to be. But I know that that's in a perfect world. That's okay, but we don't live in a perfect world. And those things are not going to happen many times the way we want them to happen. But I want to tell you this. It doesn't keep me up at night. I love you. I want you to do what's right. But I've taught you many, many times. I never want anybody to do right more than they do. And I'll sleep good at night. You know why I'll sleep good at night? And I'm sorry they didn't make it. I want them to make it. I'd do anything to, if I could to make them make it. But I know I can't. And I sleep good at night. You know why? Because I know, looking back, I did everything by the book the way God wanted me to do it. You see, my job is to put out truth clearly, cleanly, accurately, where everybody can get it. That's my responsibility. <laughs> if it ends there, your responsibility is to take that truth and do something with it. And if I do my job and you don't do yours, I'm sleeping good tonight. Unless I have one of them sandwiches like I had last night, but I'm sleeping good tonight. And God even sealed my instructions last night after eating too much. He told me this morning, you shouldn't eat that much. <laughs> and I'm just telling you, it's a thing where, you know, 
you have to develop in your life that you're doing what you need to do. Uh, people will try to put you on a guilt trip. They will. People try to put me on a guilt trip. Uh, you know, you can't ever put me on a Unless I screwed up. You, you can't put me on a guilt trip. I don't care. Somebody says, well, I'm going to go kill myself. Better take two bullets because you're not a very good shot. <laughs> you're not going to intimidate me. You're not going to, you're not going to manipulate me uh, because I, sh- I got the truth and I know what the Bible says. Now, I'm willing to help you. I, I'll do whatever it takes, but at the end of the day, we've got to come back to a common ground, and that common ground is the principles of the Word of God. But I'll always give you my best shot. I will. I'll do the best I can for you. You know, the Bible talks about 1 Timothy 3.2 and, and 1 Timothy 3.10, the deacons and pastors are supposed to be blameless. That verse always bothered me because uh, growing up in churches and even in and pastor gets blamed for everything. And then I realized what it was saying. And I realized what it was saying is that when a pastor gets up, no, if a pastor does something stupid and wrong, then he needs to correct it. No question about that. But if he's just preaching the Bible and people don't like it, that's on you. And uh, you, no matter who gets mad at truth, you still put out the truth. Uh, and, and in that, you're blameless, whether you're working with people or whatever. Now, you take the aspect of a good conscience. I'll show you another one in the Bible. Turn over to uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. It's baptism. I used to, uh, people, I've heard pastors ask people or people, why, why, why did you get baptized? And they said, because Jesus got baptized. Well, I don't know about you. I didn't get baptized because Jesus got baptized. Jesus got baptized under, the, under John's preaching. I didn't. Then, then, then what it's all about? Well, I, there's some spiritual significance to it. I get it. God came down from heaven, came through the deep, came through the water, came down, died, rode back. Well, I get it. Buried in the light. I get all of that. But, but it says over there in, in, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, it says, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. And then parenthesis, look at it. Not putting away the filth of the flesh. That means baptism won't save you. So this word saved here means something else. Every time you find the word saved in the Bible, it doesn't mean saved from sin. Uh, there's different uses for it. And here's one of them. And he puts that in here. And, uh, you know, guys who want to teach baptism for salvation will use this verse. And they'll just ignore <laughs> the, the, the parentheses of the filth of the flesh. And so he says, the like figure whereunto. So baptism is a figure of something. We know what it's a figure of, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. I get that. But the like figure whereunto baptism doth also now save us, not putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That baptism, you getting baptized, gives you a good conscience toward God for obedience and obeying what God told you to do. And it's, it, it's, it, it, these things are, are just basic things in the Bible. Now, we got a bunch of guys running around out there. They're called hyper-dispensationalists. And they cut up the Bible so much, they even reject New Testament baptism for Christians. I mean, they're the goofiest people you ever met in your life. Don't have a leg to stand on with anybody who knows the Bible. But the bottom line is baptism was given for you and for me to, as, a, as, a, as a figure of Christ's death on the cross. He says right there, by the resurrection of Christ, but when you do that, that gives you a good conscience toward God that you obeyed God in obedience to that. Now, that's what he's talking about. Now, what he's saying here is this. A man or a woman that's slothful or a sluggard, when it comes to God in, his own per, in their own personal life, they'll never have these things in their life. They'll have no rest. They'll have no peace. And they'll certainly not have a good conscience toward God. 
Now, you see it all the time. I deal with it all the time. They always have trouble. They always have issues. They always have some turmoil going on. They always have some stress in their life or strife. There's always contention. There's always, you know, always problems. There's always drama. It, it never ends. Uh, and, and outside at church, you know, around their friends, uh, they, uh, they, they portray like uh, everything is good, you know. All's okay. Uh, everything, I got it all together. We're doing really good. Everything is fine. But, it, 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 but it, 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 at the end of the day, when you lay in your bed at night, there's something wrong. I mean, <clears throat> the ministry is not complicated. The ministry is answering for your own relationship with God. The ministry is answering basic, simple questions. I mean, doesn't it bother God's people? You're saved how long? Now, 10, 12, 15 years, and you never want anybody to Christ? Doesn't it bother God's people that you've been saved as long as you have and you've never really invested your life in anybody? I mean, you've been saved now how long? And boy, if somebody would question your salvation, you'd be the first one to defend it. But in your life, you can't show and demonstrate one act of the spiritual gifts in your life. And yet people don't get bothered by that. And I'll tell you, it's because they sear their conscience. Because if you really bothered you, and I look at your faces, some of you were doing that and it still bothers you. Because you're good people and you think I'm not doing it enough. Well, I'm telling you, you know, if that was, I can't speak for you, but if that was me, I, I, I wouldn't sleep at all at night. I just toss and turn all night long because I know that he began a good work in me and somewhere along the line, I checked out. And these kind of folks, bless their heart, and I love them, as try as they will, the rest and the peace will never be part of their world. And it goes back to that slothfulness with the things of God, not being diligent about those things. And I have seen it all, all my ministry. I mean, some of the most uh, practical stuff you'll ever get is found in these verses. I've, I've seen mom and dads over the years, who have been slothful in dealing with their kids. They will have trouble and unrest and turmoil all their lives. And, and you know, and, and you're happy for what God has done in your life, and praise the Lord, but, but it kills you when you have to come to the fact that there's a failure with your kids. Now, and I don't say that to beat up anybody, because I'm going to say that in one breath, and I'm going to say this. There's always something you can do. I'm not this kind of guy that preaches that there, no matter what your situation is or your problem is, there isn't always something you can do. And certainly when it comes to your kids, and if you lost your kids, I'm telling you right now, there's always something you can do. I don't care if they're 50 years old and you're 90. But I got to tell you, most of them will never do it. I've been in this ministry almost 50 years. Hundreds of cases with parents and kids. And all of those years, I've only had two fathers found in a given situation like this that did what they needed to do. And in both cases, it changed the dynamics of everything. And I'm telling you, remember, no no matter what level uh, of issues or problems you are in, there's always something you can do. But I want to tell you, along with that, the longer you wait to do it, the harder it gets to do. Sin never lets a man any better than it finds him. I've seen husbands and wives lose their marriage. And after they do that, and, you know, most cases it could have been solved. 
you know, there's no reason. And the reason for that is, and the Bible's clear in this, if you're married to a saved person and you're a saved person to God, God's people, there should be nothing those two people can't work out. You know why they can't work it out? Because one or both won't do what's right. And that's all there is to it. And the Bible says, when you want to do what's right and you're willing to do what's right, just like your kids, you can fix it. But if you don't and don't put the biblical perspective into it and get what you need and realize that there's a role of a husband and there's a role of wife and they're different, but they got to they gotta connect together. Paul said it over there in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which is the great chapter in all of the Bible on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And he tells you, he tells you right there in verse 28, you can do whatever you want to do if you're saved and you can, you're not under the law, but he tells you right now, such are going to have trouble in the flesh. And you will. You will. I mean, it'll be a problem for you. You know, people who, who make bad choices. And we've all made bad choices in life. I have, you have. My, another goal of my ministry here is to help you quit making bad choices. You know, I tell you all the time, a couple will come in or somebody will come in and they got some issues in their life and they lay it all out. And I know just from listening to them, this is not going to get solved tonight. This is going to be a, an ongoing thing, but we can get to the end. And I always tell them because I always try to give somebody a clear hope of direction. And I tell them, <clears throat> I said, you know what? <laughs> You've got a lot of problems here. And we aren't going to solve all these problems tonight. But I'll tell you one thing we can do right now that will begin the process of fixing every problem in your life. And boy, they're, they're on to that. And, I, and they'll say, what is that? And I'll just simply say, quit making bad choices. Tonight, let's make no more bad choices. Don't make a choice. Don't make any choice at all without letting me know, and I'll help you. And I made a mistake doing that. So they want to know next day what restaurant they should go to to eat. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about big things. I, I tell people, <clears throat> I tell people, you know, <clears throat> being in the ministry is a lot like being a lawyer. If you get in trouble when you hire a lawyer like Nick, you know that the first thing he's going to tell you, don't talk to anybody. Right, Nick? Don't talk to nobody. Somebody, somebody calls you up and says, how are you feeling? Click. <laughs> don't talk to nobody. Let everything run through him. You, you say, I got this letter in the mail and it says I need to do this. You don't say, I think I'm going to do it. You call Nick. And Nick will say, I'll take care of that for you. Because the reason you're in the mess you're in is because you've been making all your choices. Now you're giving a guy, Nick, charge of your life, and he's going to make some choices for you to try to get you out of the mess you're in. That's what I do. Except we're not going to go to court. We're going to go to the judgment seat of Christ, which is a lot worse. <laughs> so you, get, you made bad choices in life? I'm going to tell you. Hey, I'll be your spiritual lawyer. Well, this guy's going to call me. Just tell him to call me. I've had it many, many times where a gal or a guy said, well, this other person that wants to get with me and we were together for a while and, and they keep bugging me, keep calling me, and I don't know what to do. Tell them to call me. Give them my number. I'll explain it to them. Look, it's over. <laughs> if it's a woman, I say, sayonara, senorita. If it's a man, sayonara, senor. Or senor. You can tell my Spanish is not too good, is it, Greg? Banyo. 
bathroom. Get you out of some jam sometimes when you're in a place. But people who make bad choices, you need somebody to help you. You're not on your own going to wake up on Tuesday after your life's a mess for the last 40 years and suddenly say, I'm going to start making good choices. I mean, I wish it was that simple. You need somebody to help you. You need somebody that can, you can bounce things off of. I tell people all the time, call me anytime. You've got something, I'd rather it take me 30 seconds to answer your question and it'll take me three weeks to undo your stupid decision. Now, which is easier? They don't. They don't. But they'll have trouble all their lives. They'll have debt, child support, exes. Well, you'll find an exes that will fight you whenever you have a kid. Your kids, you want to raise them spiritually, and they just want to get back at you. They don't care about the kid. They'll do everything they can to destroy that kid and send him to hell just so they can get back at you. That's tough stuff. Health issues. Broken relationships, strife. Hey, I mean, there are, there are some bad choices that will haunt us the rest of our lives. And, and, I, and, and it doesn't have to be because there's always something you can do. Now, you can't go back and undo everything, but I want to tell you, the Bible says you can redeem the time, and there's a lot in that. Amen. But you've got to do it God's way. We're not interested in doing your way. Look what it got you. It always amazed me. People who have screwed up their life for 40 years, they come and they want to get help, and then suddenly they're going to tell us how they're going to do it. Well, if you knew how to do it, what am I here for? Look at verse 15. Ah, practical. Here it comes. The slothful hideth his hand in his bosom. It grieveth him to bring it again to his mouth. Well, that's a good verse. Boy, there's two great principles here. Wow. Number one, he hides his hand in his bosom because he can't deal with the life he's built with his hand. So he thinks, out of sight, out of mind. Back in Exodus, Exodus chapter 4, I think it is. I think it's in verse 2. Uh, but it's, I know it's Exodus 4. Moses and God are talking, and Moses is talking to God, and God is talking to Moses, and Moses, or God is getting ready to tell Moses what he wants him to do with Pharaoh and the children of Israel. And Moses is, he's out of mind. He doesn't, he doesn't want to do it. He's, he's afraid. I get it. He's afraid. He's nobody. Who's going to listen to me? He doesn't understand the power of God yet. I get that. He reminds me of so many of God's people when God knocks on that door the first time. And I understand you're, you're trepid, you're fear. I get it. One of the greatest things in the Bible, when he's alibying to God, he can't do it. God just does, he doesn't even listen to that. God says down there in verse two, I'm sure it's verse two. He says, Moses, what do you got in your hand? And Moses said, well, I got a rod in my hand. And he says, you know what? Let's just use the rod. And that's the same rod that Moses used to turn the water to blood, to bring the plagues, to do everything that he did to bring God's judgment on Egypt. And you know what the great moral of that story is? If you want to serve God and you want to do what God wants you to do, you know where it starts? It just starts with whatever you got in your hand. That's all. And God will ask each of us at some point in our Christian life, God will ask each of us, what's in your hand this morning? And then why are you trying to hide it? We'll get to Proverbs 31 here at the end, and what a great section that is on the virtuous woman. And I've told you this already, that you'll find 
and she's a picture of your life and my life, and you'll find seven references to what she does with her hands. And I want to tell you something, good or bad, Bible says, with the fruit of her hands, she planteth a vineyard. What are you doing with your hand? And the reason why so many of God's people, as the verse says, have their hand in their bosom, because every time they pull it out, they realize what they've done with the very hands that God has given them to plant his vineyard, and you've been planting yours. And I'll tell you something, good or bad, you plant, and when it's bad, it's hard to accept what you did, and it grieves you to think about it. Now, the second thing here, oh, boy, it gets worse. Galatians 6, 7. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man soweth, that will he also reap. And the second thing is here, hand to your mouth. We reap what we sow, but there will become a time at some point in your life, folks, where you have to eat what you reaped. We try to hide the fact that we're slothful. I get it. I wouldn't want anybody to know I'm a slug. You know, and as long as we can, we try to do that. But I'm going to tell you something. As sooner or later, it comes out. And you can't hide it anymore. I was telling the guys yesterday, I'm going to be careful with this. <laughs> when, I, when I was in the military, our CEO, was a, he, was a, he, was a, he was a man's man. That's all I can tell him. I had, he probably died and he's in hell now, but uh, he had my utmost respect. This guy, left side of his chest, looked like an Army-Navy store. I mean, this guy had like four or five terms in Vietnam, and well, he, he was something. And he, he was a, one of the roughest guys you ever met in your life, but he was fair, and he loved his men. And he always included us in the good and the bad. And uh, I learned, <clears throat> I know this sounds strange, <clears throat> but life will teach you this if you're paying attention. <clears throat> I learned some of the greatest truths of life from people like that. Amen. You can't always say it the way they said it, but I learned them. Amen. And we'd have a tough situation that we got into one time. <clears throat> and uh, it was our company. <clears throat> and he pulled all everybody down. And, and I... And, and I, I love the way he did it. He, he pulled it around. He said, make a circle. He said, take a helmet. That meant you sit on your helmet. And he said, well, boys, he says, I got some good news and some bad news. And unfortunately, I've forgotten what the good news is. So I'm just going to give you the bad news. Everybody's laughing now. You know. And he started laying out what happened. And he says, and I'm going to tell you right now, boys. It's a blank sandwich. <laughs> know where I'm coming from here, kids? That's where I need your help now. You know? yeah. It's a blank sandwich and we're all going to have to take a bite. <laughs> that sounds gross, but you know how true that is in life? I mean, the Bible doesn't call it that. The Bible calls it vomit. Last week, Saul returned into his vomit a week before last. And uh, it, 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 it was, you know, it, it's one of those things. And a sluggard and, and the slothful man or woman will always, they're, they're going to have to, you're going it, to, it's yours. It's your mess. It's your plate of vomit. It's your sandwich. <laughs> and you've got to eat it. Amen. I don't like that. You think I'm enjoying this? You got one. I got a tray of them. 
And this is why the sluggard and the slothful, man or woman, they'll always blame their problems on somebody else. They don't want to come down with, look at that, here it is, it's mine. But at the end of the day, and that's a neat term, end of the day. You know where in the Bible that term is found? Matthew chapter 20. At the end of the day, it's on us. It's on you. It's on me. We own it. Now eat up. I, I told people, you know, that one time I worked years ago, I worked at the Hoover Company. It was it made vacuum cleaners. And uh, I drove fork truck, which I love doing. I'm not the kind of guy that can do piecework. They started me out on it. Oh, I just, I can't, I just, I, I just can't do it. I, I got to be moving around. And for me, uh, I would do manual labor, cleaning, you know, gutters, toilets, whatever, moving around all the time, doing something to just stand there. How long have I been doing this? Oh, two minutes. Man, I thought it was time to go home. I can't do it, man. I can't do it. I'm sorry. I know there's people out there that do. You guys at Ford that work at Ford, you work the line. I have all the respect for you in the world. I, I couldn't do it. You know, I'd be shutting that line down every five minutes. <clears throat> I'd be, uh, whoever the relief guy is, I'd have to go to the bathroom a hundred times a day, you know. And I'd be gone a while. But I, I, I just, but I, we, we had this storage area. And my job was keeping parts for the line. The washing machines came down the line. The guys put them together and it went on up and everybody did something, you know. And then they went up and they finally at the end, you know, voila, you know, Hoover washing machine, vacuum cleaner, whatever it was. <clears throat> and my job was to keep them in parts. And, and, and I, I remember I would, I'd have time, downtime, and I'd sit... And it had this big storage area, and the corridors were, you know, it'd have five corridors that were maybe 200 yards long, and they were stacked up with boxes with parts on them. And, you know, and I, I, and I would sit sometimes way back in the back, and they would page me when they needed me. And I remember one day I was sitting back there, and I was looking down this long corridor, and I, and it was, it, I, I, I just hated all this stuff. And I thought to myself, you know what really would be fun? I'm going to get off my fork truck. I'm going to walk up to the front, and I'm going to get these big hooks we use. And just to show everybody how rotten this place is, you know how we feel about factories. It's all about them, not about you. I'm just going to start ripping them boxes off. I mean, those little casters all over the floor. Big pieces coming down, boxes crashing. <laughs> and I'm pulling them down, and I'm ripping this down. Ah, oh, look at these rubber hoses. And two thousand of them all over the floor and i mean now we got framework getting big stuff and i'm pulling them down and it's banging and clanging oh in a time of my life and i'm down there boy and finally i'm down there pulling the last box down and i'm saying man that was fun ah and then about that time they call me uh, alexander we need parts on line four and i turn around and i'm getting ready to go and then i realize the mess that i just made i can't get out of this now there's boxes pieces junk that I pulled and put on the floor of this quarter that I can't get out now. You know the only way I can get out? I have to pick up every piece of the mess I made to clear my path out. And I could call all my buddies on their fork truck. They would just laugh at me. They would say to me, you made the mess, you clean it up. And I look many times how people's lives are just like that fantasy about that quarter with all those parts. All our lives, we pulled down everything and thought we were having a good time. Then we get to the end of the wall and we look back and we see now the carnage that we've created 
and it hits us like a freight train, like a hungry giant coming home for lunch, man. Only one way out, and I got to clean the mess up. Now, I'll tell you this. The messes of your life, I'll not clean it up for you, but I will do. I'll get you a shovel, and I'll help you. I'll help you with the big pieces. You got to take care of the little ones. I'll get you a broom. I'll make it easier for you. I'll get what you need. But at the end of the day, it's yours. And there's nothing I can do about it. You know, and it's one of those things where uh, he says there that it grieves us to put our hand to our mouth. And then he says, I love this, again. One more time. And then time after time. And it troubles us. It robs us of the rest, of the peace, of the sleep. And most importantly, it takes from us that good conscience toward God. How many times I've seen in my time in the ministry, pastors or deacons and Sunday school teachers, so-called spiritual leaders, and, and yet their children are a complete embarrassment to them. We had a guy one time years and years and years and years ago who was the great guru on the book of Daniel and prophecy. And I was a youth pastor then. And I remember him and his wife wanted me to always go to this Bill Gothard seminar. If most of you don't, thank God, God's good to you. You don't hear much about it anymore. <laughs> they always wanted me to go to this Bill Gothard seminar. And I would never go because it was a bunch of junk. So I'm baptizing that Sunday night. And his wife and her, uh, him run the baptistry. They get people dressed and everything, you know, help me down in the water, you know. And so, and so I'm up there getting dressed, and his wife comes over. And she, uh, these are two of the most self-righteous people y- you ever saw in your life. And she says to me, you know, I just don't know how you raise your children without going to Bill Gothard's seminar. And I said, well, I don't know either. I said, because you go to Bill Gothard's seminar all the time every year, and I just was out till 2 o'clock in the morning looking for your boy last night. They never liked me. (laughs) I'm telling you. And they absolutely destroy the credibility that you try to put forth. That's why they don't like it. And that's why they're always blaming it on somebody else. And brother, I have seen it. Hey, let me tell you something. All of the big pastors back in the 60s and the 70s, all of them, if you look at their churches today, all their kids are gone into this world. Not even going to church anymore. And I'm telling you, we reap what we sow, but don't kid yourself, it will come back and you alone will have to eat what you, what you have sowed. And now what is there? Again and again and again. Then he says in verse 16, the sluggard is wiser in his own conceits than seven men that can render a reason. Oh, what a regrettable principle this is. Now, this will be one of the great verses in all of the Bible to show you and me that a slothful man and a sluggard uh, will live his, who will live his life without established truth in it will never learn anything from it because he's unteachable. He's wise in his own conceits. And he can get messed up on something in the Bible. How many times I've seen it? I know you have. You got some goofy person that's messed up on tongues. They couldn't define tongues in the Bible and lay it out if somebody put a gun to their head. But, oh, I believe in tongues. You can't deny my experience. Well, sure I can. Watch. How about Calvinism? 
You know, the fact that God didn't choose everybody to get saved. Jesus loves me. Sorry about you. You're not one of the chosen few. You know how that works. I mean, come on, man. Really? How about hyper-dispensationalism, the goofy stuff that that puts out? Or spiritual gifts, like we talked about several weeks ago. Or the Bible itself in the King James Bible. You can sit down with somebody that is clearly messed up on Bible doctrine that is established truth. And you can get seven guys, sit down with an open Bible, show them what the Bible says. You ain't going to teach them anything. Because he's unteachable. A person who will be unteachable is headed for disaster. And uh, I'm telling you, they know it all. In ministry and dealing with people and building a church, you know, uh, you, will, you will find people who will claim to be saved and uh, completely forsake God's New Testament structure of the church. And I'm not talking about people that we all know that are just out in the world, you know, that are out there doing their thing, that care nothing about God. No, 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 no. I'm talking about God's people who are saved. They're in their Bibles. Their, their Bible becomes the Internet. And they, would, they, don't, they have completely forsaken the structure that God has given them, and yet they will study the Bible. And, uh, and, and, and you can sit down with them and try to show them from the Word of God, and they'll never get it. You know why? Because the bottom line is they don't want any accountability to any structure. That's why. And they'll forsake the one structure that God has clearly told us uh, that is to be the central aspect of our faith that everything flows through, the New Testament local church. And I get the spiritual church. I understand. I get it. I get it. I get it. But I'm telling you something. In the book of Acts, everybody wasn't, that got saved and joined the spiritual church, the first thing they did was join the local church and got baptized. And in many cases, you know, I've seen this. And I know you all, you have, you know, the big mega church concept today. A lot of people go to those churches because you can hide in those churches. Nobody's going to hold you accountable. When a guy gets up there and he's preaching to 3,000 people, uh, he's not looking at you. you can, he, nobody knows if you're there or you're not. And you can go your whole life and never get involved in one ministry. You can go your whole life and, and just skate through and nobody will ever know. And I'm telling you, you can get lost in the crowd. Or, or you'll go to a church where the pastor's weak. That he'll just preach nice, soft messages. And he's never going to come after you because he's just not. He's afraid you'll leave. I'm afraid you won't. And, and it's a thing where, you know, people, they, they gravitate to that. They can watch the music. They can see the, 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 the choreography and all of the, of the praise bands, which are nothing more than worldly perceptions of, of Christian music. And they sit there and all the people break dancing and doing all the stuff they do. They can get a little bit of the world. They can get a little bit of Bible. And they themselves never have to be accountable to anything. That's a recipe for disaster in your life. It's a recipe for disaster in your kid's life. We saw it the other night when somebody asked a great question again in 1 Samuel chapter 3. Samuel was the model. The Bible says that he grew. He never let none of the words of God fall to the ground. God established him, and then through that, then God revealed himself to him. And it was through the Old Testament structure of the temple as a priest. And in the New Testament, you and I as priests, it's within the structure of the New Testament local church. Hey, I've seen this in young guys trying to go out and start a church. 
I, I, I mean, I, in all my life. In my life, a time of almost 50 years, I probably got 400, 500 guys in the ministry someplace just, uh, just through the natural process without ever really trying, just preaching the Bible. And I've seen a lot of them come and I've seen a lot of them go long before I got here. And let me say, there's no shortcut to starting a church. But that's the Christianity we live in today. We want a shortcut to everything. And I, we want a shortcut to learning the Bible. We want a shortcut to finding a spouse. So we get on the internet and get on one of those Christian meat marketplaces. And, and we, we want a shortcut to everything today. And I'm going to tell you something. You can take a shortcut to Cincinnati or you can take a shortcut to Hawaii. But when it comes to the Christian life and the Bible and you learning it, there are no shortcuts. Amen. You have to build it the way it needs to be built through a dedicated process for it to even work. And I'm going to tell you something. In building a church, you only got to make about two or three mistakes and you're done. Years ago, when I was still in Ohio and I was getting the offer to come out here to Kansas City and go into the ministry full time, one of the old breed, one of the old boys who had done a great job in ministry and just he's dead now, home with the Lord, but he was a great saint. And he, he pulled me aside and he sat me down. It was a Sunday night. And he sat me down and he said, Bob, he says, I hear what you're doing. I think it's great. I think you deserve it, but I want to help you. And you know what he did for me? He laid out for me that night eight areas that he said a pastor has to have if you're going to build a successful church. And then a little bit later on, before I actually came out, he sat me down again and he said, now I'm going to give you something else. And he gave me eight or nine principles of what a pastor is supposed to do with his people in building that church. And I want to tell you right now, that was the best advice anybody ever gave me, hands down. It's been almost 50 years now, almost 50 years, and I still use that advice every day of my life. There wasn't a day in my life in all those years that I ever forgot what he told me. I immediately saw the value in listening to a man who had done it, who knew what he was doing, and talking to a guy who didn't have squat of an idea how to do it. And the reason why I got successful with it, if you want to call it success, is simply one thing. I was teachable. I, I let him teach me. I, was, I wasn't wise in my own conceit, not in that anyhow. I, I, I had come to the place in my life where I realized that what I was going to do, I had no idea. I knew God called me, and I knew I had enough sense to know I better get it from somebody who knew what they were doing. And those things he gave me that day, those, that evening, were the greatest advice that he ever gave me. And I, I never forgot it. He taught me because I was teachable. And I'm even more so teachable today than I was then because I've learned the lessons that life is a classroom. There are no experts on the Bible. There's no experts in building a church. There's no experts in Christianity or dealing with people. We're all on a learning curve. And we're all on different levels as students learning about a book that fundamentally is unlearnable. It's inexhaustible. It's the unsearchable riches. And you're going to tell me you searched it all out, you moron? <laughs> the smarter I got with God, it revealed a great truth to me. And this is why I'm so smart now. The smarter I got with God, the first thing I realized is how dumb I really was. That I had nothing to give God. Are you kidding me? I see God's people walking around like God couldn't get through the day without them. 
Oh, you know, I got, I had a new preacher one time that he was, he, he, he was an evangelist and he wouldn't go, he wouldn't preach. He had a doubt. He wouldn't preach to any church anywhere if you couldn't guarantee him a crowd of 5,000 people. If you had 4,000, you're out of luck. If you had 1,000, you're out of luck. His time and ministry and expertise were so valuable, he couldn't waste it on anybody in 5,000. And yet I go over to the book of Acts and I find where there's a great revival in Samaria. Thousands of people are getting saved. God pulled out the lead evangelist, took him in the desert to one Ethiopian eunuch. You see the principles involved here? I'm telling you. And today it's all different. I get it. I, I, I get it. Young men get to the place where they, you can't teach them anything today. I get it. I thank God every day for the young men and the young ladies that we've got here who are so teachable. And you take what you learn and you give. I, I just can't tell you enough. I just marvel at it. I just, I thank God every day for it. Because one, I don't deserve it. Two, you don't deserve it. And, and three, God does deserve it. Amen. Years ago, I, I knew a kid. <clears throat> And he was a good kid. And let me just say, <clears throat> they're all good kids. And he came up in my ministry and he wanted to start a church and uh, he did some things and he failed in that. And, but he's the kind of kid you couldn't ever teach him anything. He was this deeper life crowd that God only gave him the truth that he wouldn't give anybody else. That kind of stuff. It didn't matter that there were guys around him that built churches that he never built. No, no, he got the insight from God and he walked around like, you know, he had all the answers. So this is 30, 35 years ago, maybe longer than that. So he went out and started a church. And I've kept tabs on him over the years, just, you know, loosely, just seeing what happened, where he's at. And you know what? Here it is 35 years later, and he's, he's honest to goodness, he's running the same 10 people he ran back 35 years ago. And this guy went to one of our buddies and also to me, about 20 years ago, when he's running 10 people, and our buddy was running, what, 200, 250, something like that? I don't know. You know better than I do. But he had a lot more than 10. So he got this guy to sit down for lunch, and he says, you know what? He says, I just want to give you some things that God has given me that he never gave you, or, or Bob, or the guys never taught me, uh, and I just want to help you with your church. And God has showed me these things. Well, my guy was gracious and courteous. He called me later. And then the guy called me. He was making the rounds. So he called me. He wanted to take me out to lunch. And I said, sure. You're paying for it, but I'll go. I'm not buying her lunch. I'll buy anybody's lunch but his. But I would buy his lunch just to whack him a little bit, so I'll pay for it. So we go out there. Same line. Now, I'm, you know, my, our buddy is much more gracious than I am. We don't call this Grace Baptist Church here because there is no grace here. I just want you to know that. <laughs> Not when it comes to stuff like that. So he gets me in a restaurant, and he, he, he's very sincere. He's very pious. And he starts to say, you know what? He says, God told me that I'm, I'm to come to, to give you some things that God has given me to help you. And I'm good. I said, that's good, pal. I said, I need all the help I can get. And he says, well, God has showed me some things that, 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 that you never taught me. And God has revealed them to me, and, and, and I want to just give them to you to help you. And so he went all through these things. And, I, and I, I'm, I'm intent. I'm just watching this. Because now I got him right where I want him. And so, and at this time, you know, our church is running, you know, 200 some people or whatever. I don't know. And so I, I, I just, and, and so he's all done. And I said, man, that's fantastic. I said, so let me, I said, I want to make sure I get this down. 
So you're telling me that I need to do this? I need to do this. And he's there. Yeah. I need to do this. That's right. And I need to do this. I need to do this. That's right. And then I can run 10 like you. <laughs> you idiot. Are you kidding me? You've been out of 35 years and you got the same 10 you started with? And you're going to tell me God gave you secrets? Well, he gave you the wrong secrets. <laughs> but that's the way it is today. These guys, they're wise in their own conceit. They're not going to learn from anybody. Hey, when I got into this thing, I realized there were guys who knew a lot more about it than me. I wore myself out. I wore my welcome out to those guys. I'll tell you, I've seen them go out and won't listen to anybody over the years. And let me tell you something. When you start a church, if you ever do, I'm just telling you, if you start a church... You can hitchhike off the newness of it for about three, four, five years maybe. But there's going to come to a point when all that goes away and dissipates and you better know what you're doing and how you're going to do it to take that thing from point A to point B. And if you don't, you're in trouble. There's an established process in building a church and without it, you're wasting your time. And not only that, that you'll do unrepairable damage to the people. And one of the greatest truths of all the Bible and life will be, you know what? When it starts wrong, it usually ends wrong. And the Christian life will be the same way. Your spiritual growth, my spiritual growth, will have to be based on a solid foundation of established truth. You know, that, that, that is a strong biblical process. And when it's not, then a man becomes unteachable. He's a sluggard. He's slothful. He's wise in his own conceits. And he'll have trouble and heartache all of his life. And, 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 and you'll be just like our guy in Proverbs 26, 14. As the door turneth upon his hinges. This is not just any door. This is you and me. This wasn't as the door turneth upon its hinges. Uh-uh. He put that little key in there so you wouldn't miss the example. As a door turneth upon his hinges. I don't know about you, but my doors are neither male nor female. Him is a picture of you and me. Showed off a slothful upon his bed. No rest, no peace, and certainly no good conscience toward God. The Lord said in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, he says, These things write I unto you that you sin not. The principles and the truth of the Bible were given primarily. I mean, there's a lot of aspects to the Bible, but for you and for me, primarily, it was given to keep us from sin. And God established a program and a structure by which that truth was to be imparted to you. And the principles and truth of the Bible, rather direct form or indirect form through the examples and the examples of people in the Bible, they're there for one reason. That is to ensure that our Christian life, we fulfill all that God has for us. Because the Bible says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, the day you got saved, he began a good work in you. The job of the church is to bring that work along. It's to help you grow. It's to help you get established. It's to help you learn the things to stay away from, the things to put into your life. It was given to God, not as, you know, like the Ten Commandments. They weren't the Ten Suggestions. 
And the New Testament church doesn't offer suggestions. It offers hard truth that if you follow it, you'll be okay. And if you don't, your life's going to be traumatic. It's going to be problematic. It's going to have issues. And they're going to compound themselves. And I say again, I'm not painting a doom picture here. I'm telling you right now, I don't care where you're at with the mistakes you made. You can turn it around and you can fix it. Wherever you're at, if you're willing to do what you got to do. The longer you wait, harder it is. And the harder it is, the more people don't want to do it. But it's doable. It's doable if you want to do what you need to do. But you have to accept it as established truth. You have to take responsibility in dealing with people. I tell people all the time, we all want people to be perfect. But we're not perfect. I'm certainly not perfect. Sometimes we deal with people like we are perfect. And we want them to come up to our standards because we think we have the perfect standard. I'm going to tell you something. I say it all the time. In dealing with people, you have to allow them to be human. They're going to make mistakes. They're not going to always toe the line the way we want them to do it. You've got to go look past the little nitpicking of things. And you've got to see on the overall scale, what do you have here? It's like a church. You can go to any church and you can pick the problems. You can say, that's a terrible church. Yeah, you pick this out, this, that, and all that stuff. But you know what? That's not how you do it. You look at the overall concept of what God is doing. That's what you look at. And in your life, I could nitpick you apart just like you could nitpick me. But what's the point? That's not what you do. We're all human. And we're all going to make mistakes. And we're all not going to measure up to the standard. It's okay. As long as together we all hold to the standard and help each other. That's all that matters. Me there for you. You there for me. You there for the person sitting next to you. Together, working through everything. Realizing that this church, the structure that God designed, is to bring peace in your life. To give you the rest that you want. And certainly to give you the good conscience toward God. That you're not like that door that just squeaks back and forth all day long and never ceases to open and close. And our lives are just filled with turmoil that never ceases. Just goes from one problem to another. Bible's got the answers. And the church has the ability, a good Bible-believing church has the ability to execute those answers to you and help you figure it out for yourself. God never intended, folks. He just never did. God never intended for you just to get saved and you figure out on your own. The devil will be all over that. God never intended that. God intended for you to get saved, get baptized, good conscience toward God, and do what they did in the book of Acts. Everybody that got saved, got baptized, and joined the New Testament local church. And then they grew from there. And uh, it's, it's just the way it has to be. So you can see where this is, this is a great practical lesson today because it, it deals with something where we all live. Every one of us can escape this. I mean, you may sear your conscience and walk out saying, well, I don't know who he was talking to, but he sure gave it to him. No, I'm talking to you. <laughs> Most of all, I'm talking to me. Okay. Let's hold up there. We'll have a word of prayer. We'll be dismissed.